Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um, so uh, my, there's a couple of things uh, about, about this. And this, sort of, this beat is called lament. Um, uh, as you t- tell, I'm, I'll tell my story and my journey into this, but I um, need, to, um, need to become comfortable because it's really appropriate for tonight. Um, uh, I'm telling some very personal stories that are going to make me cry. Okay? So um, Lacey understands this. I hope the rest of you do too. But it's appropriate for tonight. Um, when I was um, uh, in my teens, as, as most of you know, because you've heard me tell different parts of my story before, that um, I come from a fairly dysfunctional family, and um, I went through my childhood and my teenage life um, hardly knowing it, but being illiterate. And so school was really hard for me because uh, I didn't actually fully comprehend my problem. Um, but uh, at school I had um, one highlight. I, w- I was mostly, there were some happy moments, particularly when I could bully somebody or um, play sport. But I had one highlight, and that was my only one true best friend, Graham Holland. He was um, everything that I wasn't. Um, and for some reason, he liked me. And we became really friends. In fact, we became such good friends. I spent a lot of time in his place, and his parents said they adopted me as their third son. And I looked on them as the kind of parents that I would love to have had. Well, and this, when I was about 16, his, um, his geography class had organised the whole class, all those in the class to go on a geography trip to Fiji. Yeah, right. So Graham wanted to go, and the problem was that um, he suffers terribly from blackouts quite frequently. And so his parents went to teach and said, we wanted to go, but... Phil will have to go with him because Phil knows how to handle him when he has a blackout. So, because I come from a poor family, they sheltered me to go to Fiji to be a companion to Graham. So, um, it was fantastic. And, you know, for a weekend, it was just brilliant. You know, it was everything that a 16 year old would hope a school trip would be. No teachers around and do what you like. So, uh, we ended up going to an island called Beachcomb Island, which was out. Um, off Latoka. Uh, I don't know if mean, there used to be a TV program called Beachcomber. This is the island that the TV program was made from on this island. It was great. Everything that teenagers would want on an island, you know, in terms of um, having fun and um, being naughty. Um, we got pretty tired for, over, uh, for a reason of caring for somebody in this particular night who got coral poisoning and needed to be tended until the boat could come the next morning, 6 o'clock, to pick him up and take him back to the main line. Uh, we walked this guy down to the beach, and Graham says, let's go um, snorkeling. And I said, oh, come on, mate, we, we need to go and get some sleep. And he said, no, no, and he had taken his gear down with him. So I need to go back to my bureau, the Fijian hut, and grab my snorkel, uh, my snorkels and flippers. So I went back, and I... Um, just lay on the bed, just flopped like this, and must have gone off to sleep. Well, I did go off to sleep. And woke up with a start and realised Graham would be really mad with me because he's probably waiting for me on the beach. So I grabbed my gear and I went running down and to, um, to go, and I couldn't see him. And I thought, oh, he's gone out without me. So I put my gear on and I go out to the reef where the reef is, which was on the far from shore, 
And as I was going along there, I saw Graham floating in the water. Went down and grabbed him and brought him up, and he was lifeless. And I pulled him up onto the beach, went back to the beach, and realized that uh, he wasn't moving. And as I turned him over and just saw the blueness in his face, I realized he had drowned. Just then, a doctor from Australia came running down and said, stand back, I'm a doctor. And another nurse, a nurse from New Zealand, came up and helped him. And I remember moving away from, from the body and sitting up the beach just a little way. And I can remember picking up the sand, pulling it through my hand and saying, Graham, you're dead. I'm not going to let your death affect me. And I got up and I walked back to the bureau the bureau where we're staying. Of course, everyone else in the, um, in the um, trip and in, in the team uh, of the group that had gone were all coming around saying, how are you, how are you? I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. We go back to New Zealand and um, I don't remember much about flying back. I don't remember um, anything about what led up, as things led up to the... Um, the funeral, I do have a recollection I was actually one of the pallbearers, but I don't remember much at all. Um, my, uh, the photos that we had taken got developed and my mum said, oh, you need to go around and see the Hollands. They would love to see these photos. And my heart just... Oh, just went. The pain in me was just incredible. And I said, I can't do that. And said that you've got to, they've been ringing, they want to see you. So I took the photos around and we sat there and uh, mum and dad were sitting there just crying. So I looked at the photos. I couldn't stand it. I, I looked away. I couldn't look at them. I didn't want uh, to see that. I didn't want to feel it was just so painful to see them cry like this. As we're leaving, Mrs. Holland said to me, um, Phil, we've just lost one son. Please come around. We don't want to lose another one. I never saw them again. Never went back to see them. I haven't seen them since. Even though in my later life I've tried to find them and to go and apologize to them, but I couldn't go because deep down I didn't even tell myself that I blamed myself for his death because I was sheltered by them to go on this trip to stop him from doing things like this. He had a blackout when he was in the water. That's why he drowned. And I was meant to stop that. So I closed it off. C.S. Lewis said this, No one ever told me that grief feels like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. He wrote this in his book after his wife had died from cancer and his dealing with grief and trying to work out what grief is. I know for me, as I journeyed through my best friend dying and then closing off, I realized that the feelings, the emotions were so unbearable that when you have unbearable feelings, when things like when you're feeling afraid, you either go into a flight mode, you go into a fight mode, or you go numb. You turn the dial of motions right down. 
and that's what essentially depression is. And I think without knowing it, I went into a state of deep depression. Um, and I turned the dial down. And at that same time as I went through a series of events, my relationship with my parents got worse. Um, my behaviour at school got worse until I was expelled. Um, I was informed by the headmaster as I was booted at the school that I wasn't going to make it in the world because the world eats people like me because I'm dumb. And so that kind of launched me into my adult life, alone, friendless, and afraid. But none of this I knew. None of this I was consciously aware of. When I came to faith about 21, I had um, an encounter of, of um, meeting Jesus and being healed in my life and, and having hope again in my life. We started a halfway house where we took on, took on teenage boys that were in trouble and foster homes wouldn't take them. I realized as I was doing this uh, that as much as I wanted to love these boys, I couldn't love them. I couldn't reach out to them. I couldn't embrace them. And I remember feeling really guilty about this and I remember feeling really a bad person because Jesus had saved me. Jesus had loved me. God had embraced me and told me that he loves me and accepts me just as I am. All the crap that I was living that was in my life, he embraced me and yet I couldn't do it for these guys. So I remember one night being in my bedroom just so frustrated with myself and so angry at myself, I just literally threw myself on the floor and just moaned and groaned and just cried out to God and said, why, why can't I love these guys? And it was just like God heard me and the Holy Spirit just turned on in my life the memory of pulling my friend Graham out of the water. And I realized in that moment I'd never let myself grieve. I'd never let myself feel brokenhearted. I'd never let myself feel loneliness and abandonment and even anger at him doing that. It's the first time in my life that I bumped into this very horrible feeling of grief, this horrible feeling of brokenheartedness, this very horrible feeling of loneliness, this horrible feeling of anger and of despair and loss. Oh, it's a horrible feeling. You know what I mean? I, I, hate, I, I just found it so hard. Um, but I went through and I noticed that I began to change in myself. I've noticed that I was willing because now I knew why I didn't want to embrace these boys, didn't want to reach out to them and care about them because there was something deep inside me. I loved once and it was taken from me. I never want to be put in that situation again. I never want to feel abandoned. I never want to feel broken hearted again. I never want to feel grief again. I remember this feeling of, you know, sort of this powerful feeling of that felt like fear. Uh, when Michelle, when they had our first son just a few weeks in, and Michelle um, handed Joel to me and said, um, I need to go and sleep. Will you just mind Joel? And I remember looking down at Joel and seeing him in my arms and thinking, I'm only 26 years old. What am I doing with a son? I can't be a father. I have no idea how to be a father. And uh, I, so I... I was just petrified, and, and the same feeling of deep fear was gripping me, and 
kind of knew a little bit about, you know, when I'm feeling this, I need to start to try and make friends with it. And so just a thought came to me that this is my time. It's now. And I had to come to grips with this. Stop avoiding these horrible feelings and be present. As a 26, at 27, I was holding in my arms our second child. As I was holding, she died in my arms. But I was glad that I had learned to be present when these feelings strike. I felt such pain, such grief. I felt I wanted to go numb. I felt my heart had stopped as Jessica's heart stopped. But there was something about the warmth of her body against me. As I held her lifeless body. This is what we meant to do in this moment. We're meant to feel the pain. We're meant to feel the heartache. We're meant to feel the loss. And it was my first step into understanding this part of being human. We have um, in our culture a real resistance to this, to this pain, don't we? And for a guy, particularly my generation, I'm not sure for uh, your generation, I hope, I hope for the generation most of you here, I hope for my sons that um, we try to do it differently, but I think the, 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 our culture is still very much like this, particularly our European culture, is that we don't like this pain, we don't like this idea of feeling, this grief, heartache, brokenness, um, loss, um, and the anger that is associated with that, the frustration, the doubts, the that are not knowing, not understanding. These are such deep emotions that are so um, difficult to grapple, particularly in our culture hasn't given us ways to be able to do it well. When I was an elder in Batonio Baptist, when Michelle and I were in the eldership of Batonio Baptist, we had some very dear friends that were in the eldership with us. Um, Rose got cancer of the liver, and then as she was dying, a number of women got around her um, to, to pray for her healing. And they prayed so, they were so um, earnest about this that they even got Rose thinking that she would be healed as well. And the day came when she died and sat next to her and her husband and as, she, as her life passed away, went back to her home first thing in the morning. One of these women in this prayer group they've been praying for rang me up very angry and accused us elders of being faithless. And the reason that Rose died is because she, we didn't have the faith to believe she could be healed. 
And then the group demanded that I would go there and raise her from the dead to show the church that I had still had faith. It didn't faze me, this, I understood it. But what it did teach me and what I thought was really interesting about this is that I don't think that they rang me up and they really came at us because they essentially want her to be alive. I think it was more the fear that God doesn't answer prayer when we pray for healing. And that if God didn't answer for this godly woman, then he may not answer for them and they desperately want to know if they got cancer, God would heal them. And the proof would be that he would heal Rose. And that would be just wonderful if God raised her from the dead because she's meant to be alive, not dead. And I realized what was wrong in the evangelical Pentecostal charismatic church that I was a part of is we had no, grief, no theology for grief. We had no theology for dying. We had no understanding of how to be with somebody as they died, how to celebrate their lives with them while they're dying. We had no practice for that. We had no theology that helps us to walk into that. And it seems to me that this is a big hole in the way that we live our Christian lives, is that this joint with this fear of facing grief, of facing heartache, loss, things not being right, things being terrible. Um, we, we, don't, we haven't gone to the scriptures often to see what does it say to us how we should be in that time. And so when Jesus is talking to, this, to his, these people on the mount, and he says this beatitude to them. I don't think they had the same issue as we do. When we read this, often from a, we go from a, 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 a Western point of view, which is that we personalize things, how it affects me, what happens to me. And so we have a sense of, of um, self-focus, how I'm feeling, what's happened to me. Whereas I think in the time when Jesus was talking to the disciples and talking to them, he talked from his perspective when he said, blessed are those who mourn. It's quite, um, uh, quite interesting when, he, when we talked about that word blessing and some say that it means happy. So he said, happy are you when you're unhappy because you'll be comforted. And there is a sense in which if we can stop and just take a quick look and think, how would the first hearers have heard this beatitude? I think it, um, Chris Marshall pointed out in his paper that all of us who are doing this series have read and thought, you know, good to be able to quote one of our own. Um, Chris um, uh, points out, and so does um, McKnight, so does um, Tom Wright, and so does Tom um, Scott Stott, um, all point out that uh, we need to approach this beatitude Blessed are those who mourn from how the first readers would have heard it. And they all agree that we look at something that they would be, have memorized and it would be in their psyche and this is the lens, if you like, that they would look through to see that. So I'm going to read that and there's a part for you to read too. So when we come to the yellow part, I want you to join in, in the reading and say those words. This is because when we start to talk about how the first readers would have read or heard Jesus say this, this is the kind of things that were their life, their experience. For centuries, this is what they carried. 
And Isaiah, the prophet who wrote to them just before they went in exile and prophesying to them what the journey was going to be like for them, which ended up being for the next two to three hundred years. This is what he said. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. And of course, we all have now the hindsight of this. We know that this eventually was talking about the Messiah. And but the Hebrew people would have interpreted this as the Messiah as well. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the and to declare that will be released and will be fed. Freed, thank you. It's got an R in there. Um, I am slowly learning to read. He has sent me to tell those who that the time of the Lord's favour has come and with it the day of God's judgment against to all who in Israel he will give a crown of beauty for a a joyous blessing instead of festive praise instead of in the righteousness they in their righteousness there will they will be they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. They will rebuild the repairing cities long ago. They will revere, they will revive them though they have been. So what we see is that um, often when we would um, read the this beatitude, we often immediately think about our own personal grief or we'd think about what's going on in our lives. It could be things that are like, in my case, losing loved ones. It could be something that um, has happened to us that's been devastating for us. Um, it could even be at a much personal level in terms of our own grieving for our own failures, for our own um, inadequacies, um, our feelings of, of, of um, low self-esteem or of hurt, of being wronged. These are things that we often would go to when we think about this beatitude. We mourn and we're, we're and we are comforted by the idea that God will comfort us. And often the idea of God comforting us is more about taking it away. So our reliance is when I'm feeling really bad, I hate this feeling. When I'm feeling grief, I hate feeling grief, but I'm thankful that God will take it away. But for the Hebrew people, when they listened to this, that wasn't where they went. We see in this Isaiah reading that where they went was about their exile. Where they went was about Israel not being the people of God that they, that they dreamed and believed they were to be. And when they read it, they were, they were thinking about the pain and the persecution that had happened in their lives, and so when, um, which, which would break their heart and cause them to mourn. And so when Jesus was said, blessed are those who mourn, these people are in exile. The hearers know that they have been under the tyranny of the Roman rule, they have been nearly 400 years without their land, without Israel being this glory of God. And so their feelings of what they wanted and what they believed God wanted led them to feel deep mourn, more a deep grief and deep heartache and deep frustration. So... When they 
when they would hear this, these words of Jesus, I think, and what a number of the commentators that I've read on this said about this, is that their focus is what matters to God. What God is about in them as being the people of God, what they are about. And it also would include a personal level about their own lives, about their own, if you like, righteousness or their own sinfulness because they were people that were still very much guided by the Torah, by the laws of God and keeping them. And whenever they didn't, there was a sense of loss, a sense of heartache, the sense of not being good enough. Now whether that, as we see it, in our kind of more Western way of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that's not where it's at. It still was their focus. And I think the thing that made this really potent for them is that it wasn't an individual response, it was a collective response. Now when we read the Psalms, we see that the Psalms are kind of split up to three basic categories of Psalms. There's what you call the... um, Orientation, thank you. I lost the word. <laughs> There's psalms of orientation, and that's essentially psalms that kind of say, it knows we're uppers. God is great. God is loving. God created the world. God cares for all. God makes it rain. God feeds the hungry. There is a sense in which a uh, psalm of orientation says, this is how life is meant to be. Isn't it great? And then we have the psalms of disorientation, where it all turns to custard, where it all goes... Oh, dear God, what's happened? Where are you, God? Why has this happened? Why is this? Why? And this, a lot of these psalms were written when they were in exile. And so they feel this dead loss, but then the third kind of psalms that are in is the psalms of reorientation. Going, oh, I get it. Okay. So even though all this terrible stuff that's caused me so much grief, so much sorrow, that's broken my heart, that in it, I've discovered that God is with us, that he is good, he is loving. He hears our prayers and we wait for him. And in his right time, he lifts us up and he puts our feet on the rock and he puts a new song in our hearts. Now, without lamentations, without lamenting, we never discover the reorientation. And at the point of reorientation is when we really do step into the depth of who God is and what life is about. For me, growing up in the early stages of my Christianity and moving through um, uh, the years of my 20s and 30s, um, there was never any kind of talk about the place of grieving, mourning, or what we call lamenting. Because we're so focused on being happy. We're so focused on not having problems. We're so focused at God removing problems that we haven't stopped to realize that there is a world out there that is full of grief. And so for the Hebrew people, they were really aware all the time that the ideal, which our language is, the kingdom of God, wasn't there. For them it was Israel being in their homeland with a temple and with walls to protect them. They lost all that and they agreed because that was their idea of what a city of God was like. 
And so they would mourn. And they had ways of doing this. I thought about doing this tonight, but I chickened out on it. They tore their clothes off. <laughs> and they heap, they heap ashes on them. I was only going to do my T-shirt. And they heap ashes on their head, but I chickened out doing it. But it's, that was a common thing when they would come together for a time of lamenting. They had a vehicle in which to do this. And it was in that collectiveness when they would do that, they would discover something about God that you would never discover about God if you did not lament. So it's probably on us to think about what's our tearing the clothes off, what's ours putting ashes on our body so that we can help ourselves to move into this time of lament. What do we lament? Well, I've thought about this, just how, how, what's the equivalent for me today that matches how the first listeners of this beatitude, what would be the thing that would possess me? What would be the thing that would fill my mind, imagination? And I realized it's actually, it's actually a bit harder for us than what I first thought it would be. So all, all we need is to have some insight and we'll get there. But I think this, I think because we are in a culture so orientated to self, that the, the, the people of God, in order to be able to lament, need to come together and collectively feel the heartbeat of God for his creation and realize that God's heart is broken because his creation isn't how we want it to be. And we have so much insight in Scripture, so much insight in Jesus and Jesus' teaching uh, to this fact. I don't know, have you ever taken, you know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? My Sunday school days taught me this. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. Who knew that? <laughs> You're all good Sunday school people. <laughs> Did it? Good on you, Alan. Well, I don't know if you've stopped and considered that. Jesus wept. And what was going on for him? And some scholars say that actually this was a regular occurrence. So there's two times in the Bible that we can see where it referenced to. One was when he went to his hometown and entering it, he wept because he knew as he walked in there that the people would not recognize him as being the Messiah that's come to save them and to bring the kingdom of God in their presence, that they may have all their desires that they wished for met. And he wept because he, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. He was grieved at the wickedness of the leaders that would kick him out of that town. And then when he looked over Jerusalem before he went in, that before the... the um, what we call the passion story where he was betrayed, he wept for them because the kingdom of God was not going to come to them in the way that he wanted to come to them. He felt and was moved by what was on God's heart, what mattered to God, and he realized it mattered to him. And Michelle and I have... Um, been practicing the office of morning and evening for quite a few years now. 
and in the evenings we go through a process of praying for different situations. There's one particular prayer, intercessory prayer that we do, which is praying for the world and what's happening in the world. And um, I find that really hard. The two things that make it really hard for me, one is that I have to put myself in a position to find out what is happening in the world. I, I, honestly, I had thought at times I would rather be able to um, uh, be back in the dark ages when we didn't have technology because the only thing I'd hear about the world is those few travellers that would come through and they'd tell stories and go, oh, that's interesting. But we have instant access to all that's going on in the world. Last weekend, Michelle, Luke and I watched the movie, a documentary called um, Human Flow. I don't know who's seen that. But it's a documentary that's made to try and bring together an understanding and insight on the enormity of the refugee crisis that's been in the world for the last 10 years. It goes back right further, but it just took a snapshot and showed us what the refugee movement, people moving around the globe because of being refugees. It was heart-rendering. It's just not Syria. That's bad enough. We hear a lot about that. Bangladesh, Pakistan, Burma, Asian, uh, different Asian countries, African countries, the Middle East, and realise that the largest and longest um, refugee camp in the world is over 60 years now as a refugee called Palestine in the Gaza Strip. And when you stop and see the pain, the agony, the displacement of that, the depravity, the, 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 the way that they're treated, the way they're thought about, it's so far from what God wanted for his humanity. And everything in me cries out too much. I can't take it in. It's just overwhelming. I don't want to know. And I think one of the reasons I respond like that is because I don't know what to do with this pain. I have nowhere to go to process it. Michelle and I do together. But I feel overwhelmed when we pray and it's just I'm glad when we forget some nights not to do it. I know that coming to the end of last year when we were talking about, Lent, uh, talking about Advent and doing it here, I was so looking forward to Advent. I was so looking for that four weeks of just being able to celebrate the love of God coming to the world to rescue us, to bring his kingdom in the final chapter starting. Because I was just overwhelmed by the whole distortion in the world. Millions of people displaced and I can't do anything about it. I feel so powerless. And a few times I cry out to God and say, where are you? Why do you let this happen? Why isn't there good people who are in leadership stand up saying, no more, stop this? But I'm happy to be distracted from that thoughts. I'm happy to go to work where I have to focus and concentrate. I'm happy about coming to Mosaic and doing what we're doing in Mosaic. I'm happy for anything that will remove this pain from me. But yet I think when Jesus says, bless those and mourn, he's bringing us back and he says, this is part of being my disciples. You must mourn for the fact that God's kingdom hasn't come in the way that he wants it to. You must grieve about that. You must feel the pain of that and come to him. 
The only thing that makes um, this really worth able to do and uh, to embrace to do it is because we will um, get into, uh, put ourselves into a place where we remember the other part of this reading from Isaiah. So I want to read it again, and I want us to notice the other message that's in it. The first one we saw was all the brokenness, the heartache, things that were wrong, things that didn't happen. But here is what Isaiah said. So this time, you'll read the yellows. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has to bring to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, and to proclaim the captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He, will, he has sent me to tell others who mourn that the time of the Lord's favour has come and with it the day of God's their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes a, instead of mourning. Instead of despair, in their righteousness they will be like, and the Lord has planted in His own for His own glory. They will, the ancient ruins, cities destroyed long ago. They will, though they have been dis, been deserted for many generations. So the other part of Jesus is, blessed are those who mourn; they will be comforted. And so the, the thing, and I learnt this through my journey of coming to terms with grief and allowing myself to experience and feel grief, was that it wasn't that the pain goes away. I have an enormous hole in my heart where Graham should be living, but he's not. And even though I tried many for many years before I came to terms with it, fill that vacuum with something else. It can never be filled. I have a hole in my heart where my daughter Jessica should be. I have a hole in my heart where my dad should be. But the thing that makes being able to tell the story and to remember them and to be able to embrace them is that there is a sense in which that hole in my heart is right where God can be seen in my life. He hasn't removed them. He hasn't made them go away. They're still there and I still feel the pain of it, but he is with me. And this is what they knew when they listened to Jesus, that in their mourning, in their grief, they know that God is with them in it. I want us to um, move into a time of being able to embrace the moment of lamenting as a community. Often what we do at, uh, now is to stop and to um, uh, have a discussion, reflect on some questions. I wanted to do a little bit different. I wanted to, to talk and share with you some of my, my journey and my insights that I've learned for myself about um, what lamenting means and what Jesus might have meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn. But I find that um, it's not something that I can or should do alone. In fact, this needs to be part of every community of faith's life that they will stop and they would lament the fact that God's kingdom hasn't come yet as he meant to, even though it has become, begun and we experience the coming of his kingdom. There is a sense in which we need to feel the heart of God 
who cries for those that reject him. If you are mourning, you have the opportunity to worship in the most powerful way possible, lamentations. This worship is done in order to have God remove the pain. It simply recognizes that God stands in the midst, in, in that moment with us. Lamentation elevates God to the presence, in the presence of our enemies. It brings out a side of God that other forms of worship simply can't touch. And for the few times that I've been able to be in a, in a group of people that have chosen to, to enter a time of lament, to allow their anguish and their, their, to come out and to do it together, there is a sense that we've felt and heard the heart of God in a way that we haven't before. This is not an easy place to go to. If I can kind of give you a quick illustration of what it might look like to allow ourselves to go there. So um, uh, Justin and I uh, had a bit of a tiff and I said some mean things to him. And so um, I, I ring him up on the phone and say, look, Justin, if, if what I did has hurt your feelings, I'm truly sorry about that. Um, are you okay? Okay. That's what we call an apology. But if I want to take that further, I say, Justin, we need to go to Neo and have a coffee. I'd like to talk with you. And I say, Justin, I realized that when I talked to you the other day, I, I said things in an way that actually was beneath me and was not right and it wasn't actually kind towards you. Um, I um, really regret what I said to you. Um, please forgive me. That's what we call a confession. But if I wanted to take it to the point of lament and of mourning for a dead, I'd say, Justin, can we come to St. Matt's and just sit together at the altar? Where Salvation Army Church, it would be a repentance bar. That's what they would call. We would kneel there and we would repent. And I would say, Justin, I... I feel so so much self-loathing how I was. It's everything that I don't want to be, but I am. I can be victim and say cruel things. I can, I can, I, I'm nothing. When I don't get my own way, I just hurt others. I don't like being this person. I really would like to be different. I feel powerless. And I really would like to change. Do you hear my heart? Will you journey with me? That's called contrition. That's what mourning looks like. That's what lamenting looks like. It's really hard to get there, isn't it? We like, we're okay about apologizing. And with a few that we really should know, we get right, we'll confess. But to come and be contrite, to mourn my sinfulness, to mourn my brokenness, to to let others in and see me like this is where the heart of God is and that we get to see God and to know him and understand him in ways we never will unless we go there. It's often thought God takes all initiatives, but it isn't true. We are invited to take action and summon, and summon God into the situation Prayer causes God to do things that he might not do if we didn't ask him to do, ask it of him. Um, I don't have any time to unpack this, but it's, 
you may be aware of some of the scriptures in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Moses, others who beseeched God, who cried out to God, um, where he, because of their prayers, because of their mourning, because of their brokenness, because of their earnestness for God's will to be done, God's hand has moved. I think when we come before God and we mourn for the brokenness that's in the world, for the loss that's in the world, for the the hatred that's in the world, for the way that people's lives are distorted, where they lose their dignity, where they lose their homes, that we see just in the... um, in the whole refugee movement around the world, where we see children who are stolen and put into slavery, just so many areas of life that are broken, and we need to enter into them. So blessed are those who mourn. 